Hi, Josh. Hi, Sarah. Welcome to episode 17 of Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast. This week, um, we have a whole bunch of fun and interesting stories for you. To start off, I'm going to talk about some workers who are on the the higher end of the wage scale, but are still feeling exploited. Um, It's been an ongoing issue in sports in recent years whether NCAA college athletes should be paid for their work. The NCAA, of course, argues that they are students first and that the sports are just a part of their college experience, that most of these athletes get scholarships and otherwise compensated, and the ones that are really good do, in fact, end up making quite a lot of money in professional sports. The athletes, on the other hand, um, several of whom have filed a lawsuit that has been proceeding, are arguing that Basically, they're forced to go through the NCAA in order to get into pro basketball and football specifically, that they are making money for these schools, um, many of which are taking in millions of dollars on their athletic programs, um, that other people who are part of the sports program, including coaches, make lots of money. There was an interesting chart that went around recently showing that in many states, the highest paid public employee was the school's football coach. And so this lawsuit is going on. It's been filed by pro athletes, but has recently been joined by six current college football players um, who are saying that more would join, but they're very afraid that the NCAA holds great power over their career. So a lot of people, I write about sports unions fairly regularly, a lot of people do not have a ton of sympathy for people who go on to make a lot of money. However, there were, when we're talking about college sports in particular, we're talking about people who are risking their health and their bodies for something that is making somebody else a lot of money, that is not making them any money other than the scholarships that they get and the education that they get, which in many cases, either they go on straight on to pro sports and don't finish their degrees, or when they do, they're spending so much of their time playing sports that the education that they get is not equivalent to the education that other people who are spending their full time on their studies are getting. Um, So this lawsuit is proceeding. There have been no decisions made yet. Um, It will be very interesting to see how this goes, because, again, this is an area where a ton of a lot of people don't have a ton of sympathy for the workers. But if you think about it, it's really a little frightening how much money is made off of people who are being paid nothing. This week we saw the successful confirmation of the new substitute National Labor Relations Board nominees put forward by the Obama administration in a face-saving switcheroo as part of the so-called non-nuclear fallout (laughs) uh, in the Senate. This means that for the first time in a decade we will have a full complement of standard appointees on the National Labor Relations Board, and it might begin to do some of the things that it is legally expected to do again. Hearing cases, enforcing labor law, as well as issuing precedent-setting decisions that interpret what labor law is for most workers in the private sector. There are a number of cases on backlog at this point. There would be a great deal of work to do just if this board were to reverse all of the precedents set during the eight years of George Bush. Of course, it won't reverse all of those precedents. 
one precedent-setting case that I know is being closely watched by a group of workers who have been watching for many, many years will be what happens with university graduate students who are workers. This continues our theme of workers who many people don't find sympathetic, but there has been a real explosion in recent decades in universities' reliance on graduate student employees, people who teach classes or do research as a key economic engine of the university. When I was a student activist at Yale, working with the union I went on to work for, Unite Here, research was released finding that fully 30% of the teaching at that university was being done by these graduate students. These are people who make often less than $20,000 a year, who are increasingly a major part of the business model of the university, who do research that is funded with federal grants and sold to private pharmaceutical corporations without any legal requirement either to the people who actually did the research, say discovered an HIV drug in the case at Yale, or the taxpayers who fund the research, or the patients whose lives could be saved by these potentially life-saving drugs. And so we've seen a movement in universities in the private sector to do what workers have done all over the place in the public sector, to unionize and bargain collectively about what happens to their labor and what they get for it. Those workers had a a very brief window of being recognized as workers under federal law by the NLRB. That lasted from 2000 through 2004. It was one of the last decisions that was made under Bill Clinton's appointees to the NLRB, and it was then reversed by George Bush's. During that time, only one private sector university actually started bargaining with their union of graduate students. That was at NYU. And once that precedent was reversed, NYU reversed itself and refused to negotiate a new collective bargaining with agreement with those workers. A key player in this, as I've reported, is Jack Lew, our now Treasury Secretary, who as COO at NYU played an important role in that university's taking advantage of that reversal by George Bush of what appointees of Bill Clinton, Jack Lew's old boss, had done. And so these are workers who've been waiting for a long time in hopes that the reversal will itself be reversed. I asked Mark Pierce, chair of the NLRB, what he would say to workers who've been waiting a long time for this decision to once again potentially restore their legal right, at least on paper, to bargain collectively with their boss. He quoted an old commercial which said, all wine in its time. And so we will see whether that that wine time has arrived for these workers who represent one of the many faces of the growing portion of the U.S. workforce who right now are not seen as workers under the law at all. That was, in fact, me laughing in the background. Um, I should note that the one union job I have ever held was as a unionized graduate student worker at Temple University, um, Tugsa represent. But we're leaving the university for now. There was a new report out this week. The AP reported that four out of five U.S. adults struggle with joblessness, near poverty, or reliance on welfare for at least part of their lives. This is 
quite possibly not a surprise to many of our listeners. Um, It wasn't necessarily even a surprise to me. But it is representative of a growing trend and a growing understanding of that trend in this country that um, we're sort of screwed. (laughs) It's interesting that this came out in the same week that President Obama made an economic policy speech where he called for raising the minimum wage at an Amazon warehouse. As I commented on Tom Hartman's show this week, um, if he wanted to make a statement about raising the minimum wage, he could have done it from a picket line this week. There were lots of them for him to choose from, which we will be talking about momentarily. Um, One of the interesting things in this report also is that race disparities in the poverty rate have narrowed since the 1970s, not because people of color have had their situations improve, but because working class white people are doing worse and worse. Um, By 2030, this report found, based on this current trend of widening income inequality, close to 85% of all working age adults in America will be experiencing bouts of economic insecurity. Um, This study, or this particular piece of the AP, did not discuss the decline in private sector union density in relation to this issue, but um, we here at Belabored think that fixing that trajectory is an important part of any plan to fix this problem, and it's really hard to imagine that this changes without people having more power in the workplace, people working, people having more power in general. Um, That means in the workplace, that also means in the eyes of politicians who maybe should think about where they have their big economic policy speeches and not at a notorious low-wage employer. Are you subtweeting the president? I'm not subtweeting. I think I'm being pretty damn clear. (laughs) Fair. (laughs) That's Sarah laughing again. Consider making it your ringtone on your cell phone. (laughs) That or the belabored theme song. Maybe different ones for different people who are calling you. (laughs) To close out the news roundup, last week we saw a a real escalation in the public pushback by industry against what I've called alt-labor. This array of groups that are mobilizing and organizing workers without collective bargaining and without seeking collective bargaining. You can look at worker centers, at Working America, at the current effort at Walmart. As there's been an explosion in these groups, Janice Fine at Rutgers measured about five two decades ago and now counts over 200. Business has started to take notice. And so following a couple stories in the Wall Street Journal, one of which was about a letter by congressional Republicans calling for these groups to face the same reporting requirements that unions do. There was a funny full-page ad placed in the Wall Street Journal by the Center for Union Facts, the industry group of Rick Berman, the super lobbyist. This ad had Rich Trumka, the head of the AFL-CIO, as a union boss, and then Rich Trumka, head of the AFL-CIO, in Groucho Marx's glasses and mustache as a worker center boss putting forward the idea that these are just unions in disguise. Uh, Janice Fine said to Micah Utrecht in a great piece he wrote on this for In These Times that that's ahistorical. It leaves out the ways in which many of these worker centers 
sprang much more out of the immigrant rights movement or economic justice clergy groups than out of unions per se. What is true that these groups have noticed is that there are certain advantages that these groups face right now from not being bound by the downsides of U.S. labor law that apply to groups that are considered to be unions under the law. Of course, there are also real downsides that they face from not having collective bargaining. Right now, judging by the Republicans, who one one might guess are talking to the same people that are funding Rick Berman's work, right now their policy focus has been on trying to take these reporting requirements and apply them also to these alt-labor groups worth noting that the businesses that are funding the Center for Union Facts and Congressional Republicans have nothing like the financial reporting requirements that unions do. I would suspect, though, that the real crown jewel here, the real ultimate goal that these business groups would love to see if they can convince the public and politicians that it's wrong that these alt-labor groups are able to proliferate without all of the requirements that unions face— that the real crown jewel for them would be not reporting requirements, but restrictions on picketing. We've repeatedly seen these groups face industry, claiming at the labor board that they should be regulated like unions, that the frankly undemocratic limits on union picketing, like the restriction on going after another company in the supply chain of your company, or the restriction on picketing for over 30 days if your goal appears to be collective bargaining. Those are, I think, the restrictions currently applied to unions that these industry groups would really love to see applied to these alt-labor groups because, as I and others have written about, we've seen some of these groups be creative about existing outside of the set of particularly restrictive requirements that industry has used effectively to put unions in, in a box in which they hope that unions will die. Speaking of which, <laughs> this week we see a major escalation in one of the campaigns that is very dramatically wrestling with how to get out of that box with how to organize in an overwhelmingly, virtually entirely non-union sector, with how to revive strikes as a tool that can work effectively, and also with how to wrangle the direction that the economy is actually going. So in fast the fast food industry this week, we've seen strikes in New York, Chicago, St. Louis, Detroit, Milwaukee, Kansas City, Flint. We also see picketing going on in Seattle, In New York on Monday, there were reportedly 500 strikers, making it the largest of the strikes so far. Sarah, you and I have both been writing about this. We were out there on Monday in New York. What what struck you about these striking strikes this week so far? I mean, it really seemed like this week was the sort of coming out week for this as a national campaign. A lot of the reporting on these strikes as they've moved from city to city has been focused on the local origins of each of these groups. But it's very clear this week that as these are coordinated across the country, um, 
that this is one campaign, that this is the messaging has always been the same. It's been $15 in a union in every state, even though some states, like we would say in New York, it's a lot more expensive to live in New York City. Um, and states like Washington, where the Seattle workers are having their actions today, um, have a decently high minimum wage of over $9 an hour. So in this case, we're seeing obviously an escalation, but more so a declaration that this is a national campaign, a national movement. So what do you think the end game here looks like? Oh, we have to talk about that already. I, we have so many other things we can say before we get to end game. Well, mean, we, that's, we such could... a, that's such a... That's such a big question, right? That's the question. That's the question that everybody is asking. Um, And there are so many answers because I don't think anybody knows, right? Yeah, I think it's, uh, I I think that is the the suspenseful question going forward. I I know I, I could see a range of results. We should acknowledge that one of them is that these companies will take some blows, stay put, be willing to suffer through the bad press and eventually the funders particularly SCIU the the key funder putting millions of dollars into this will move on leaving these workers particularly the ones who've taken leadership that much more vulnerable to retaliation that would be the worst case scenario in my mind i think the best case scenario is the one where the choice to go after all the companies in the industry turns out to be a real advantage if the combination of legal liability, public embarrassment, frequent disruption leads one company, maybe one that's particularly vulnerable, to defect and reach out to the campaigners. Particularly, we can imagine they would reach out to SEIU to make some kind of deal, perhaps a trigger where a deal only goes into effect after they get some competitors to join them, perhaps bounded to a certain geographic area, perhaps, and particularly controversially, a deal that ahead of time make some kind of compromise about how the labor costs could go up if that kind of deal happened the way that we've seen it happen in other industries like janitorial historically that would be a huge transformation in perhaps the most representative job in the future u.s economy yeah it's it's interesting because um you've written a lot about the walmart campaign and and walmart is such a giant employer i mean walmart is the largest single employer in the country, but some of these fast food employers are, they are a good bit smaller, but are still some of the second, third largest. But in any case, Walmart sort of has no competitor that you could go after and thus angle your way in, right? We've seen like Costco is not really the same thing as Walmart at all. And Costco notoriously, or famously, I should say, it's not a bad thing, um, pays its workers rather well. And that has not had the slightest bit of influence on how Walmart wants to treat its workers. Um, But with the fast food industry, especially I'm thinking about some of these regional chains that are not nationwide, that you could get like, you know, a Jimmy John's or a smaller company to decide that they want to give in. That could be a wedge in in a way that the Walmart workers I don't really think have. Yeah, I mean, this has been a a subject of debate from the beginning because we've talked on this podcast about other campaigns, whether at Walmart, whether at Hyatt, where you take the approach of choosing either the worst or the biggest or the most vulnerable company in the industry and training all your firepower on them. And there are real disadvantages to going after everybody. It's harder to de-brand 
any particular company if your message is that the whole industry is terrible. It would right. certainly be harder to pull off boycott tactics that way. Right. At the same time, I, I do suspect that part of the reason we've seen a, a really striking amount of mainstream media coverage this week is that these workers are talking about the whole industry. Yeah. And as you say, if one folds, then that would really change the equation for the others. Yeah, it's actually been interesting because McDonald's in particular, which is the biggest fast food chain, of course, has been facing a lot of bad press recently. I wrote about the payroll debit card lawsuit that they're facing, and they're certainly not the only company that uses these payroll debit cards. Um, Everybody from the Darden restaurant chain to universities use these to pay their workers. But McDonald's certainly became the face of that. Um, They got a lot of bad press for this budgeting video that they put out on their website where they seem to imply that, yes, workers actually do need to make $15 an hour in order to survive. Um, They maybe didn't intend on that. But again, so McDonald's is getting certainly some bad press on that, but also, um, you know, nobody's called for a boycott of McDonald's yet. And the irony of, you know, both the fast food companies and Walmart is that these are places that low-wage workers rely on in order to feed their families and buy necessities because they are also the lowest-priced options out there. So, you know, Barbara Ehrenreich famously wrote about working at Walmart in her book Nickel and Dimed and not being able to afford to buy a shirt from Walmart. Um, It's the unending, you know, downward spiral of low wages and low prices. But the clear difference between the Walmart and the fast food campaign is that the Walmart campaign is very cagey about talking about wanting a union. That is not one of their demands, while the fast food campaign has been very clear that the demand is 15 and a union. What do you think about that? Yeah, something I find funny is that the Walmart campaign, where... From the beginning, the campaign has been explicit about saying this is not a campaign for unionization. Right. Largely gets covered as a campaign for unionization. Whereas the fast food campaign, where from the beginning, workers have said $15 in a union, much of the press coverage largely ignores the question of unionization and talks about it as just about raising the minimum wage. Right. And there are reasons for that. I, I don't think it's a secret that lots of workers at Walmart and lots of organizers at the UFCW would love to have a realistic opportunity of unionization there. I think that part of what's been surprising about this campaign, and this again may go to a potential advantage of going after the whole industry, is that there hasn't been a very strong anti-union public pushback from these companies to the extent that I would have expected. We somewhat belatedly almost, we saw in the lead up to the strike, the Employment Policies Institute, another Rick Berman industry group, create another full page ad saying if people's wages are raised to 15, they'll all be replaced by iPads. But in the public statements from these groups, the groups, the statements they've sent to the press, the public... They seem to be doing much more to argue against the raise than to argue against the union, whereas I would have expected them, like Walmart, to make a point of talking about how this is all funded by a union that just wants your dues and is going to donate to Obama and force you to go on strike and so on. And so I don't know if that's because the industry is not realistically afraid yet of collective bargaining, doesn't really see that as a possibility, but is trying to fend off local or national minimum wage increases. Or 
if there's some other explanation for why so much of their public pushback has been just about the money. Yeah. It's interesting um, that the robot argument, the replacing them with iPads. I actually had a weird experience going through LaGuardia Airport a couple of, last month. Were you replaced with an iPad? I was not replaced with an iPad, but I had to order my breakfast on an iPad. And it was the most inefficient, messy, horrific. I have now, every time I fly through LaGuardia, I make sure to get my breakfast at a bodega first because I'm not buying anything from this food service because like you had to go order on an iPad and then you had to go up and pay and then come back and wait and they had to have a woman who was standing there telling you how to do this and like there are still people in the back meanwhile cooking your food so I I couldn't even figure out how it possibly would do away with your labor cost and I should also say that like I don't think it would be a bad thing to replace a lot of terrible jobs with robots if we actually got to a point where robots could do them as well as humans could we would have to have a real heart-to-heart talk america with the world about how we redistribute wealth when more and more jobs are no longer need to be done by humans but i'm you know i mcdonald's is not a place that people are really thrilled to go work at most of the time right it's not a great job that you want it's a job that people are taking out of necessity and the the union demand i think is really important here because like yeah we can see a path to minimum wage increases right new york passed a minimum wage increase not to 15 dollars an hour unfortunately but it will get up to nine ten dollars an hour eventually what we're seeing though is that it's not enough Right. What most of the workers that I've talked to, and I think a lot of the workers that you've talked to as well, money is certainly a big complaint, but also respect is a big complaint. Kareem Starks was telling me about his boss calling him in on his day off because he had asked to make extra money so he could take his kids out for um, his kids' kindergarten graduation. And his boss called him in on his day off. So he, you know, was like, oh, you need the hours. So you want to work. And then every other day that week, send him home early. And he's like, you know, that's just disrespectful. That's rude. You're taking advantage of me. And that's not something that even giving him a raise isn't going to change that. And I think there's, there's a lot of conflation between these are jobs that, you know, realistically nobody really wants and the way we respect the people who do them, right? And yeah, there are a lot of jobs that are not terribly popular that most kids don't grow up wanting to do when they grow up but that doesn't mean that the people who do them are less deserving of respect and i think that the union demand is often almost always much more about respect i think also that the the staffing issue and collective bargaining go together i mean this ad in some ways the the funny ipad ad is in some ways, just the service sector equivalent of bosses telling workers who start organizing that their jobs will be shipped overseas, yep. which is Cape Rompenbrenner and others have pointed out is rampant anytime there's an organizing campaign and became more rampant after NAFTA. But what, what that argument also overlooks is that right now these companies are pushing the staffing to the bone. There are ugly results, like the number of workers I've talked to on picket lines from these fast food companies who've pointed to burns that they have from the job, Mm -hmm. from the ridiculous staffing there. What actually stops companies historically and currently from cutting jobs 
is not workers being willing to work for ever less money. It's workers having leverage to be able to demand certain minimums in terms of staffing. And that's where the bargaining demand becomes so key. That's also, I think, fundamentally of greater urgency than the question of what the exact wage level should be. An an individual person who watches this may not be able to decide for themselves, well, this person's labor should be paid exactly this amount. But people can look at what happens in a fast food restaurant and say, well, on wages, on safety, on sexual harassment, on health insurance, would it be better for the people who work there to have some say in what the business model there is than for it to continue to run the way that the industry has with 10 to 20% profit margin margins for these corporations and consistent poverty for these workers. Yeah. One of the things that, that has happened in recent weeks, too, is um, we talked about how this week is sort of nationally coordinated strikes that are you know being done on a big scale to pressure a whole industry. But we've also seen in the last couple of weeks these, these heat wave-related strikes, right? That um, workers at Dunkin' Donuts in Chicago and at a McDonald's here in New York went on strike because there was no air conditioning in their workplace and there was no requirement that there be air conditioning in their workplace. And so they went out on strike. And one of the things that, like, we t- you talked earlier about the NLRB maybe starting to get back to doing what it's supposed to do, but, I mean... I- realistically we still know it's an uphill battle even with a fully functioning nlrb um to win union recognition but one of the things that i think is really powerful is i i quote newsies which is a fantastic movie you all should watch it a million times and maybe go see the broadway show which i have not seen yet where the newsboys go you know well we don't have a union the one guy goes well if we strike then we're a union when they are acting like a union and they're using collective action on the shop floor, which is a very, very, very old as, you know, the newsies was a newsboy strike in the 1800s. Um, it's a very old tactic, right? You don't need anybody for most of the existence of the labor movement. There was not a government sanctioned board that would decide whether you were a union or not. You just did your thing. And that is one of the things that I think could also be an interesting way forward here is the idea of the union, whether or not you actually win a vote, but the idea that we can work together in this particular workplace and we can win changes. And one of the stories, one of the things that we've heard again and again after these strikes is workers in a particular workplace getting a raise, workers in a particular workplace getting better treatment. Um, When I was in Chicago a little while ago and spoke on a panel at the Socialism Conference with um, Trish Kajla, who is one of the Whole Foods organizers in the Chicago Fight for 15 campaign, um, she was saying that, you know, they, they, after their strike, they got their break room is much nicer in the Whole Foods now. And like little wins like that, that do happen on an individual, on a local level. Yeah, I I think we both know that all across the country there are places where people are union members on paper, but there's very little unionism, where people see the union as a third party, where it's tolerated by the boss rather than feared. And conversely, there are workers 
all over, including the graduate students at Yale I mentioned earlier, who have in every way acted like a union for a very long time without the boss or the law recognizing them as such. And so while collective bargaining is a powerful tool and an important one, and bringing collective bargaining into this industry would be a huge transformation, in the meantime, it'll be very interesting to see what level of unionism can be pulled off in these places, what it means for workers to have experienced that kind of collective power and that kind of support to go back into their workplace. And if that changes, as workers say it already has, the way they interact with their boss, if we start to see more changes, if we start to see issues like a heat wave or like an unfair firing more regularly be dealt with with industrial activism. Anytime something like that happens, that develops leadership, that develops capacity, that creates stronger cells that can then be brought together in these larger actions. Yeah. That's that's something that I think we'll both be watching along with how the industry responds because I suspect that we have not yet seen the most aggressive pushback from these fast food companies, both Certainly. in public but also on the shop floor against some of the leaders that have been involved. Yeah, it's interesting because we're talking about um, nationwide corporations, but on the local level, most of these are franchises. So the bosses do have some degree of individual discretion in how they deal with these actions. But one of the things I want to go back to the sort of national scope, or this is sort of a local and national issue, um, several of the cities that have had most organizing success in the fast food campaign because I'm I'm imagining that there are campaigns going on in other cities that have not gotten to the point of being able to do citywide strikes yet. But some of the places that have had real success, some of the pictures coming out of Chicago this week are really impressive. Um, I saw a picture of a picket line that was three deep this morning. There are sites of recent labor battles, right? Chicago, famously, the teachers strike. Um, and the ongoing fights over the public schools that are led by the teachers union, um, Wisconsin, where we saw, I mean, the center of the union activism around um, Scott Walker's bill was in Madison, certainly, and not Milwaukee, where we've seen the fast food strikes. But it's a, a state that has had recent battles over labor. Um, Michigan, the strikes in Detroit, and I think in Flint for the first time this week. I mean, when you say Flint, you can't say Flint without thinking of sit down strikes, or at least I can't think of Flint without thinking of sit-down strikes. Some of you might think about Michael Moore. I think about sit-down strikes. Um, that there is a history, both recent and older, in these places of labor militancy. In New York, we haven't had a real recent huge battle, but we certainly have a long-storied history of labor fights. It's, it's interesting to see as public sector campaigns as public sector attacks, rather, have been ramped up, that in those same places we're seeing these private sector campaigns take root. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I really think the past few years we've seen unexpected vulnerability and unexpected vitality in the labor movement, and often we see it in the same places, in Wisconsin, in Michigan, in Chicago. And where that goes, we're going to have to see. But it is quite striking that at a moment when you don't see big auto worker strikes anymore in Michigan, you do see growing fast food strikes. Yeah. So you wrote a piece recently called Who Should Fund Alt Labor that I think is is relevant to this discussion and to the broader discussion of where the labor movement is now. 
I mean, there's some big questions involved here, right? We know that on the national level, SEIU is very involved in this campaign. And on a local level, they're partnering with a variety of local labor and community groups, worker centers and the like. One of the big questions that I think you took on in that piece that is on a lot of people's minds is is how democratic are labor organizations when they're relying on outside funds rather than relying on members to fund them? Yeah, so of course we all know that unions have their own internal struggles over democracy, what Certainly. it means and to what extent they have it, and that's that's something we've talked about going back to our very first belabored podcast interview with Karen Lewis. But something that does force a certain kind of accountability within a union is funding through members' dues, generally through automatic dues deductions from paychecks. The difference in the alt-labor space among labor groups that may rely on consumer activism, may rely on political activism, but have in common not having collective bargaining is that those groups thus don't have automatic dues deduction. And so right now, these groups are mainly funded by foundations and by unions. The piece I did for The Nation was looking at some of these different models, being funded by a union, being funded by a foundation, treating your members as well as customers of a health insurance plan or a a matching service with employers, selling something to the general public, having a voluntary dues system, and looking at the pros and cons. And each of these come with real pros and cons. So organizations that do try to get funding through voluntary dues from their members, especially early on, it can be a tremendous hassle and it can be a tremendous drain of resources and energy. On the other hand, external funding has a real downside in terms of accountability to members. If you conceive of your group not just as an advocate on behalf of people who need it, but as a workers' organization in which workers have ownership, then there are real downsides when somebody else is keeping the lights on. I talked, for example, to one former organizer who talked about campaigns in Louisiana that he said moved forward before the worker leadership was really ready, before it was strategic to move forward with the campaign, because there were goals that had to be proven to external funders. And so... I think these are difficult questions. In in the case of something like the fast food campaign, it is worth noting that even for traditional unions, organizing of workers who don't have a union is generally funded from the outside. It's generally funded by dues from other workers and not by contributions from the people who are trying to get into the union. But it is certainly true across the board that if you conceive of your organization as more than an advocate on behalf of other people, but as a real workers organization, then there are going to be challenges, especially when you are in a war of some kind against a very powerful enemy in terms of what it means to pursue democracy, to what extent it's a priority, the downsides of not having robust input from the people who are on the front lines and what it looks like to facilitate that while also being able to move swiftly and to not let your enemies always know what you're going to do before you do it. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting, right? Because this is a problem that is not just unique to labor. The problem of trying to do economic justice work, like class-based work, when you're relying on your money from people from the other class, right? I find it 
sort of endlessly hilarious that the Ford Foundation funds labor organizing in a lot of places, right? Um, I went to an event for release the release of the Domestic Workers United big report um, last year at the Ford Foundation, which is sort of hilarious because uh, we all know how Henry Ford felt about unions, right? Um, and it's it's interesting because the event at the Ford Foundation because of that audience and because of where it was, was very tailored towards telling people how they could be good employers of domestic workers and not talking to people as if in the room as if we might be or have been domestic workers. This is a tension for me. My mother did domestic work for a while. This is, you know, I am always a little put off by the idea that the only people in the room you might be talking to are their experience of this is on the employer side. Um, but that's where the money is coming from because they don't ha- certainly don't have a union. They don't have dues money. They are getting their money from foundations, from donors. And it is a, an issue to deal with. And so it's a complicated ans- question that I don't have an answer to. One of the problems with the sort of lean and mean model, um, I've written about the Laundry Workers Center here in New York, which is all volunteers. All of the organizers are volunteers. A lot of them are workers um, from their first successful campaign, the Hot and Crusty campaign, who do have a union at their workplace who had sort of an amazing victory. And one of the best things about it is that it's a very much, there are very much worker-driven campaigns. It's hard, however, when you're relying on people who are unpaid. You cannot really realistically demand of somebody who is working as an organizer for hours and hours that they're not being paid for that they put in more time, that they put in extra time, that they be accountable, that they can, you know, be there every day. Those people also still have to make a living. And we don't, I don't think anybody wants a labor movement that is only made up of and organized by people who are wealthy enough to not need to work. Um, That presents a whole other set of problems. So, well, I think it's wonderful that people give their spare time and their, their effort and their demand. I think that organizing is work just like any other kind of work, and it also should be paid and supported, and people should also be able to have a sustainable life doing this work. Josh, you were an organizer. Tell me what you think about this. (laughs) I was an organizer in a union where there was a staff union. And this is uh, obviously a a topic of great contention within the labor movement. But yes, organizing, it, it was often said there that organizing is not just a job. And certainly it's not just a job, but it is a job. And the work of organizing is work. And unions, like other institutions have greater blind spots when they have less input from people who are doing the work as well as people who are members of the organization. And so it is something that is a challenge that courses through every organization at some point in terms of how you build a culture of intensity and leadership and connection, but also of critical engagement and controversy and a a sense of robust leadership that also includes questioning the direction of the organization and the strategy and certainly the best as well as the worst unions 
wrestle with questions of how they engage the input of staff as well as the question of what it means to be a worker organization rather than just an advocate like the AAA. Right. Sadly, Josh and I are not going to be able to solve all these problems for all of you today. Um, But we will certainly, I think, keep talking about these questions. When you come down to it, these are the big questions, right? How do we have a real workers' movement that is led by workers, that works for workers, that is actually set out to change the way work happens in this country? Belabored podcast from Descent Magazine, the place for the big questions and that that global conversation that Sarah mentioned earlier about the transformation of work and technology. Also, we, we are happy to host it. World. For the moment, this brings us to the portion of the podcast that we call. Arg! I wish I had written that. Sarah, if you had no shoes, and instead you needed to cover and protect your feet with the the comfort and also the protection of an extreme jealousy about a piece of writing that was written by someone else, what would you want all around your toes? What, what would that jealousy be? <laughs> so my friend Susie Cagle, who um, now is a full-time reporter at Grist Magazine, which is not exactly known for its labor coverage. Um, it's an environmental publication. Um, Susie wrote a wonderful piece this week called The Dark Side of Startup City. It actually, it came out last week. Um, it's about gentrification in San Francisco, and specifically gentrification of what is construed as public transportation in San Francisco. Um, You may have heard of or live in San Francisco and be familiar with the Google bus and other buses that take workers from the city where it is, of course, very trendy and attractive to live to the Silicon Valley campuses of these, you know, massive tech companies. So you have very well-paid workers who line up every day to take a free bus that, of course, has Wi-Fi so they can work on the bus to their workplace. And meanwhile, the public transportation infrastructure in San Francisco is notoriously iffy. Um, Susie wrote this piece in the context of a BART strike, a Bay Area rapid transit strike. And during that time, a lot of tech writers and tech bloggers were talking about the need to disrupt public transportation and how, you know, the Silicon Valley meritocracy is, is the opposite of unions, which is hilarious. And... The way that public transportation is something that um, working people rely on to get to work if they are not lucky enough to work for a fancy employer that sends them a private bus. It is a place where people do work, as we talk about the BART workers who are on strike who um, may possibly strike again. We really have to think about cities in this context, right? Cities, we, we talked a lot about the labor history of certain cities in, earlier in the podcast, the way cities are put together, um, how they run, their public services, all of that is extremely important, not just to labor organizing campaigns, but to how workers can get to work, can navigate work, can be members of society. And I think that 
thinking about these questions is a really important part of thinking about labor. This piece really shows sort of the dangers of prosperity as well as the dangers of the growing income inequality that I talked about earlier today. And the companies that are always willing to swoop in and try to privatize public services that working people rely on and end up making them too expensive for working people to use. Speaking of sustainability in work environment, we have talked often on this podcast about the horrific industrial disasters and deaths in Bangladesh. This week, George Black had a piece uh, at On Earth, a publication of the Natural Resources Defense Council, which was reprinted by Mother Jones. The story was originally called The Untold Story of Rana Plaza, and it's a look at how people end up in Dhaka, how people end up in the garment industry in Bangladesh and the role of climate change. He talks about the term climate refugees, suggests instead the term environmental migrants, talks to people who came to Dhaka in response to environmental transformation in Bangladesh, someone whose town was being menaced by a tiger that had moved because of habitat change, people who moved because of change in the water level, because of lack of water, and the way that environmental transformation changes where people go to work, and then how that intersects with the conditions that they work in and the deadly risks that they can be exposed to. He also travels beyond the buildings where the garments are being made to where materials like leather are being produced, which have their own horrific safety issues, and paints a picture about how people found themselves in the place that they did, doing the work that they did, facing tremendous safety risk. That brings us to the end of episode 17. Once once again, we find ourselves ending on a less than incredibly optimistic note, even in this week of striking strikes. Our podcast is produced by the amazing Natasha Lewis. We're grateful to those who came out to our event with the Kalmanowitz Initiative in D.C. We are looking forward to next week's episode where we will have Will Jones talk about his writing for Dissent about the anniversary of the March on Washington. We hope that you will contact us on Twitter. Tell us what you want us to cover. Tell us who you would like to hear on our podcast. Ask us questions about what you would like to have explained. Send us pictures from your local strikes. Um, And tune in next week for what will be yet another fun and exciting podcast. We'll see you then. This life is hard, so hard I must go. Hey, twin, the fact, hell no, we can't go.